Very glad to have everyone this morning. And I uh, just want to point out a couple more things on the uh, back of your bulletin before we turn our attention to God's Word. And uh, the first one is to go all the way to the bottom, and there's a second from the bottom on the financial update. There's funds needed to complete phase two of the ABLE project. I want to thank you and praise God this morning that that is only at $1,735 now. Uh, so there's been a lot of giving this week. I don't know who those sources were, but I want to thank you to uh, move us closer to that goal. So by next week, we wanted to have closed that gap. If you're not familiar with what that is, that is uh, phase two uh, came after phase one. We purchased this building just a few months ago. By God's good grace and providence, it brought us here. And in phase one, we did a lot of painting, a lot of touch-up, a lot of spent a lot of our energy and sweat equity to make this place uh, more presentable and also more beautiful. And uh, we're moving into into phase two. And uh, phase two has included putting a new roof on, which we've already done, and now will be the AC. And so that's what our goal is. And we're hoping that by next week, hopefully I can stand up and announce that that gap is completely closed. And what happens if we go over that? Well, it just stays right in that fund for phase three. And phase three is going to be focusing on things like replacing the doors, putting in security system, updating the bathrooms. And we're going to be talking about that next year. So no worries. It will not go towards anything else other than the building. Um, we have much more work to do here, but God has blessed us. And I want to thank you for everyone who's given to that. And help us close that gap uh, this week if you can. The second thing I want to say is that next week we're going to have a Sunday evening meeting. We're calling it a family meeting, and that's just to be different than a congregational meeting because congregational meetings usually you have something to vote on, and there's no agenda to vote on anything as a church right now, but we did want to update you on several things, and this is going to be in person here at 5 or also on Zoom, we're going to try to have it set up, and we'll try to have the ability to answer questions and such, maybe somebody monitoring the Zoom so that we can uh, make sure that there's plenty of interaction online as well. But we're just going to be updating you on a few things. We want to um, talk about, uh, many of you have questions about uh, the deacons that we have trained and where we stand in our deacon ministry and wanting to get that off of the ground. And uh, there's an update there. There's an update as well. We've been talking to uh, Eric Kuntz, who has just graduated, as we mentioned, the last couple of weeks uh, from seminary and what his future might be and should that involve more, time, more of his time spent here. And we're going to be talking about that as well. And just a few other things that are going on in the life of the church. We just want to have a family meeting where we kind of gather together and talk about some of those things. So next week, 5 o'clock, we'd love to have you here. Uh, in this room or uh, over Zoom would be great as well. well. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, verses 18. We're going to read first 18 through 25. And we're going to stop there. It's in your bulletin as well, just that first little section. We'll stop there and then we'll read the other sections as we go this morning. We're now in the third week in our series called Hark, which is we're looking at the story of Christmas through the lens of the angels who brought the message. The message is good news. The English word is gospel. And we hear the good news from the messengers, the angels of God, and we need to listen to it. We need to hearken to it. That's an old, another old word, which just means to listen or to pay attention to. 
And we've been looking at these stories and what we need to pay attention to. And today, what we're going to see in these three little sections, three times that Joseph was visited by the angel and the message of trust that he gives to Joseph and then by extension gives to us this morning the trust in what God has done and the plan of salvation. So we're going to read this together. Matthew 1, verse 18 through 25. Let's read together. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear you a son. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the dream, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So you know that moment in a uh, TV show where you are watching it and you've seen maybe a number of episodes and you get what the show is doing, like you understand the pattern because writers of TV shows, they kind of fall into patterns. And what I found is I don't usually, if I like the show, I don't mind the pattern so much. It's kind of comforting. It's kind of reassuring in a way. And I just experienced this uh, very recently with the show The Mandalorian. So hopefully everybody is watching uh, The Mandalorian on Disney Plus, $7.99 a month. Why not? Um, and uh, if not, you know, it, this, is, this is a Star Wars thing. Um, and like all Star Wars things, the plot is not the point, right? I mean, if you watch any Star Wars show, the plot is usually something several layers down from the most important thing, right? We all experience the the effects and the sound and the overall effect of the look of the show. And that's what this is as well. The Mandalorian, it's a good show, but it's good in that sense. And, um, you know, there's a predictable pattern. And we've kind of discovered it over the last few episodes I've been watching. haven't finished season two yet, but just noticing the same patterns. If you're not familiar with this, uh, The Mandalorian is a the leader of a mysterious cult, religious cult kind of thing, and, and he is a great fighter, and he comes across the child. And the child, otherwise known on the internet as Baby Yoda, um, be, besides being extremely cute, is uh, very powerful and mysterious and has some kind of future that we don't know about. And so the show then comes into this predictable pattern where the Mandalorian is trying to get the child back to the foundlings, the original people, that he is from. I mean, the, every episode does basically the same thing. Uh, basically, the Mandalorian needs some information so that he can get the child to the next spot, so that he can get more information. And to get this information, he usually has to meet someone, um, and this person is willing to give the information, but they also have a problem, usually some kind of fantastic Star Wars-type beast that the Mandalorian has to slay. 
And so the Mandalorian will slay the beast, and it's always more complicated than, uh, than it turns out to be, orig- or that it's said to be originally, and then he gets the information, and then he takes the child, and he moves to the next thing where he gets the next piece of information. It's the same episode pretty much every time. And, you know, we're here for it. You know, I love it. It's, it I'm, I'm okay with it. Why? Because, as I said, that's what Star Wars is about. It's not about the plot necessarily. It's about the effect that it has on us. And we see the character development. This Mandalorian's a good guy, and he's a good fighter, and the child is important, and the pieces are coming together, but it's happening in the same way. And today, I bring that up because I want to give us three episodes of Joseph's life. And each of the episodes have the same plot. They really do. These three sections of the first two chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Really, it's the same thing over and over again. It's the the basic plot doesn't change. The situations change. But the message, the overall effect, is that it builds this trust in the plan of God. And a trust that we're supposed to share with Joseph in his plan for in God's plan for salvation. And it didn't occur to me until later after I wrote this that the, uh, <laughs> the Mandalorian is actually a good comparison because it's basically this plot. They basically stole it from the New Testament because you have this guy who's defending the child that's important to the world in some kind of way. And in fact, in these stories that we're reading today, the child is the focus. Even when it talks about Mary and Jesus, it says the child and his mother. It's a strange way to say. Normally we would say, they would say, and we would say the mother and child. But it's the child and also the mother. And the child is the focus. But to get into the story a little bit and understand, this is a very tumultuous time in Joseph's life. Joseph has a very first the first few years of his life with Mary are extremely tumultuous and terrifying. I mean, think about what Joseph has experienced. He's hearing in this passage that he is going to have a son that is not going to be his son. And then not only that, in these later episodes, as we're calling them, he has to run for his life and the life of this child that's not his and the life of his wife. And then he has to go back to Judea, but Judea is still not uh, a safe place to be. And so he has a very tumultuous time. And each time, in each episode where he's presented with something that he has to decide, is he going to follow the Lord? Is he going to walk with Him? Is he going to listen to the words of the angel that's telling him to hark to this message, to trust God and to move to this next stage? Basically, he is at a lot of different crossroads. Should I do this? Should I do that? What is God's will? What is his plan? And that's a place where we find ourselves so often as well. We, we want to know, what is God's will for my life? If I heard that question once, I've heard it a thousand times. What is God's will? Is, is this thing what he wants me to do? Is this safe? Is it prudent? Is, is this what God wants And we are not often visited by angels to get that direction, but neither was Joseph, not often. He was during this time because this was a special circumstance where the child is being shown and and the salvation, the story of salvation is being unrolled. And yet, 
what Joseph would take from this and what we should take from it is also instructive and encouraging to us. As we see this plan of salvation unfold, we see that God has plans for us as well. And where we, we learn to trust Him like Joseph did. So here's what I want us to see. Seeing God's plan and salvation helps us trust in the plans He has for our lives. When we see His plan of salvation and how He unrolled this plan, it should have the effect of us trusting in God's plan for our own lives. I've mentioned the predictable pattern of these episodes, as I'm calling them. And the pattern is this. There is a problem, there is a plan, and there is a providence. Three times. Those three things happen three different times. Let's quickly go over it and see how they happen. So episode 1, it's the, it's the part we just read in verses 18-25. through 25. There is a problem, there is a plan, and there is a providence. First, there is a problem. Verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. Now this is not a problem according to God's plan, but it's a problem according to Joseph. He's just received news that Mary is pregnant with a child. What is he to do with this problem? He has a decision to make. And adultery could be punished could be punishable by death in this time. It's still the Old Testament law code. Adultery was a serious crime. And so he could technically expose Mary. Maybe she would be punished in some kind of way. Maybe even her life would be in danger. And with this problem, Joseph begins to make a plan. What is his plan? Verse 19, And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. This is her, his plan. I'm going to divorce her quietly. Now, just as an aside uh, this morning, I wanted to say this, this gives us a little bit of a view into how we understand the Old Testament law. There's kind of a thing floating around out there that says basically the Old Testament is only a bloodthirsty uh, book that is filled with you know, all of these extreme punishments and therefore something that we should uh, abhor. And what we see here in the Old Testament, this law, it is true that the Old Testament had laws that its penalty was death. What the Old Testament law shows us is the full extent of God's law. It is still true, by the way, theologically speaking, that every sin that we, we commit is punishable by death in the ultimate sense of, of everything because that's what God's law demands. But what we see here is someone who knows the full extent of the law and yet he, he, wants, he wants to protect Mary. There's mercy here. And it's not clear how often and under what circumstances the full extent of the law is executed in Israel. Just like Jesus with the woman caught in adultery, who said, He who had the first stone, or he who has no sin, cast the first stone. Joseph is called just. He's called a just man for not bringing the full penalty of the law and for showing mercy to Mary. And so he makes this plan to preserve her 
and to preserve her reputation by divorcing her quietly. But his plan is redirected. Verse 20, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. God redirects the plan of Joseph and tells him instead to marry Mary. Why? We're told that because this plan that God redirects leads to a providence. When I say providence, I mean God's ultimate plan in the world. His working. His control over everything. And we see exactly why God wants him to marry Mary. It's because of this in verse 22. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This was according to the plan and the foreknowledge of God. That's Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 that is quoted here. And so what seems like a problem to Joseph, what seems like a major ditch in the road of his life, in something that he should plan around in the providence of God is exactly what he wanted to happen. How many of the problems that we face, how many bumps or ditches in the road are things that, we, that are of God's design? The answer is all of them. We believe in the providence of God that He controls all things and knows all things and is unfolding a plan of salvation. That's the first episode. The second episode is the exact same plot. Exact same plot. Let's look at it quickly. Verse uh, 13 of chapter 2. It's in your bulletin. Skipping ahead a little bit in the story, we see the second time that Joseph is visited by the angel. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Again, in episode 2, there is the same pattern. A problem, a plan, and a providence. The problem is this. Herod wants to kill the child. This is Herod the Great. There's five Herods in the Bible, by the way, and it can be very confusing uh, to know which one is which. This is the, the grandfather. Uh, the first Herod, Herod the Great, a bloodthirsty person in general, a cruel leader, and someone who was jealous for his throne, had people killed in his family so that he could defend his line. That's the problem. Herod the Great wants to kill this child. And Joseph is warned in a dream, just like the wise men in the passage that we skipped over are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod because Herod wants to kill the child. So then, what's the plan? The plan is flee. Run away in the middle of the night. And this terrifying thing to look at, Joseph is warned in a dream and he doesn't even wait till morning. He gets everybody dressed and he runs to Egypt. That's the plan. Egypt would have been a natural place to flee, a very practical place to flee. It's very close by. 
You could just go over the border. About a million Jews lived there. There was a Jewish settlement in Egypt at the time. And you know, there's no credit card systems. No one's, no one's checking everyone <laughs> coming in. Like Nobody knows that Mary and Joseph are going to be in Egypt. So it's a good place to get lost. So it's a practical thing to do. Someone's trying to kill you. You run for your life. And that's what God wants them to do. He wants them to do the practical and necessary and uh, normal thing. Which is what Joseph thought he was doing in episode one, right? I'm going to divorce her quietly. I'm going to do the practical thing here and, and make sure that my life stays in order. In that case, God had said, no, I want to change your plan. In this case, he says, you should just do the practical thing and run away. Why? There's like a mystery in the Scriptures. Sometimes, you know, we see this in the life of Jesus even. When Jesus, sometimes He gets, he gets overwhelmed by the crowds and he, he can't escape them, seemingly. And the other times He gets into a boat and teleports to the other side of the lake. You know, why does God sometimes change our plans and sometimes He lets us do what is most normal and you know, straightforward for us? Could not the God who had given a virgin a son immaculately also have confused Herod so that Herod wouldn't see where the child was. Of course he could have. Why didn't he? It's a mystery, but in part it's because of the providence that he wants to show, which he says in verse 15. It says, This happened to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I call my son. Now, what's interesting about this, it's a quote from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. What's interesting is that this refers not to what is traditionally known as a messianic promise from the Old Testament, not like the Isaiah passage that was referenced earlier, the virgin will conceive and will have a son, Emmanuel. This is a passage about Israel. It's just Israel, which is often called God's son in the Scripture. And so, this passage out of Hosea is being applied to Jesus Christ that out of Egypt he's called a son and what he's doing here as the New Testament authors often do is tying the story of Jesus to the story of Israel what was the story of Israel that they were they came in desperation to Egypt like Joseph comes with this child in desperation to Egypt in the Old Testament it is out of desperation of hunger, and there they have to stay, but then God leads them out of Egypt. And here, God wants to lead His Son, Jesus Christ, out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I've called My Son, the ultimate Son, the ultimate Israelite, the true Israelite, Jesus Christ. And we see the New Testament doing this all the time, applying different parts um, of the story of God to Jesus showing he is the true Israelite. The, New Test the writers of the New Testament believed that this story was fulfilled in Jesus, not just in the obvious parts, but in every part. I mean, I think about Paul in Galatians. He makes a, an argument based on a single verb tense about how Jesus is the fulfillment of this story. He says about Abraham, actually he goes back to the story of Abraham, and he says, now, promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, this is Paul talking here, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. 
You see how even the writers of the New Testament think every piece of this story is being fulfilled here in this unfolding salvation. There's a problem, there's a plan, there's a providence here. The last episode has the same. Look at verse 19 and following. But when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that... What was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Same pattern. Here's the problem. The problem first is that even though Herod is dead, who sought his life, there's still a cruel ruler on the throne in Judea. Here are the historical circumstances that are surround this. I mentioned the five Herods. Well, four of them are father and three sons. So Herod had three sons, and he killed off other people in his family, but he had three sons, all named Herod. Um, thankfully, in Scripture, most of the time they're referred by their other names so that we can understand, that we can see the differences between them, but not always. Sometimes you have to figure out which Herod they're talking about. But Herod the Great had three sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip, uh, all of them named Herod. And so Archelaus, we're told here in this passage, becomes the leader in Judea. At the last minute before Herod the Great died, he gave this succession plan and gave his three sons the different parts of Israel. Well, Archelaus, like his father, was known for being cruel and also being a bad leader. He actually only ruled for two years. And then Herod Antipas, his brother, took over the parts while he was banished because he was such a terrible ruler. And so we've got, they want to go back to Judea. They want to go back to Bethlehem. They want to go back to the place where they were. Bethlehem's right next to, to Jerusalem. It's very close. It's a short driving distance now. And, but they end up going north to Galilee. Why? Because that's where Herod Philip is ruling. And Herod Philip is the only one who is reasonable and not bloodthirsty. And so they go to a place that's safer. And so we see the problem they have to address with a plan. And the plan is, let's go where it's a little safer. It's like a combination of the first two. It's like here, God wants us to go back to, to Jerusalem. But okay, when we get there, we've got to change plans again because now we have to go somewhere else where it's safer. And all of this was for the providence, which is the last verse again. So that was what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Part of the promise. And so you see the patterns in every single uh, episode of Joseph's life where there is an angel, there is this pattern reinforcing to Joseph to trust in the plan and the salvation of God. And Matthew spells it out for us beautifully here. There was a show that I used to watch when I was growing up um, I, couldn't, I can't remember the show, and somebody texted me after the first service with the, with the I can't, let me see, pulled up here. Pappy Drew It. Pappy Drew It. I don't know if you're familiar with that show. I grew up with it. 
Um, but I couldn't remember it, and I knew that there would be someone that would, that would tell me after the service. But Pappy Drew, it was a show about a guy named Pappy, and he, he had a, a, a canvas. And, um, and you, would, you watch the show, and what he would do first was he would just put random things, seemingly random things, onto the, the canvas. Squiggle here, a box down at the bottom, a line over here, a diagonal. It would just be random things, and you would have you get on there and draw it yourself too. And you knew this was the, this was the plot every single time that he was going to connect all of those things together into one picture. And he was usually going to wait as long as possible for you to be able to see what that picture was. So, sometimes the final stroke would finally reveal what it is that he was drawing. And what you were thinking the whole time is, what could this be? I mean, what what could possibly emerge from these random shapes? But eventually you would see it. He would connect them. He would draw this around it. And then suddenly that box was something else. And that squiggle was the hair of the mane of a horse. Or whatever it was. He would draw some picture of an animal or a scene and it would emerge out of it. And Matthew is doing the same thing here. He's putting together the full picture of the Messiah. How can it be that the prophecies say that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, that he will be called a Nazarene, that he will be um, like a Nazarite, like, like the, those who would take the, the vow, the Nazarite vow, like Samson in the Old Testament, who is a picture of Christ, Samson is called the Redeemer or the Savior of Israel, clearly a messianic title. And this Jesus was like him, and that he took, he is from Nazareth. These seemingly random pictures, how can it be that he could be the suffering servant of Isaiah, this one who was born of a virgin and yet also suffered greatly, that he's also the triumphant king of some other prophecies? That he is all of these things at once. Matthew is telling us, reinforcing, that this was planned all along and in such a way that makes sense historically and practically. It made total sense for Joseph to leave and go to Egypt in the historical situation. But God knew that out of Egypt He wanted to call His Son. like it was planned all along, and it was. But even here there are surprises, there's a twist. It's not all just according to what you would expect in this story. The big surprise comes in verse 21 of chapter 1, where we're told, that Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. That's a surprising verse. We're not used to the surprise because when we teach our kids, we say, what does Jesus do? Jesus saves me from my sins. And we don't see the leap that would have been taken by someone who were hearing this or reading it for the first time. The first part of the verse is not surprising. That his name would be Jesus. You'd expect that. Jesus is the Greek word for Joshua. Joshua is a very important name in Scripture. 
Scripture is full of Joshua's, but the two big ones come at two very significant times in Israel's history. First, there's Joshua, son of Nun. He's the Joshua who succeeded Moses in leading the people into the promised land. Can you think of a significant moment in Israel's history where Joshua was the Savior of Israel, conquering the enemies of God and leading the people of God into the promised land? There was another Joshua, though. Joshua the priest. We see in the book of Ezra and in Zechariah. He is the branch who rebuilds the temple after the exile. So Israel comes into the promised land, but if you know the story, they have to leave the promised land and go to Babylon. But when they come back, it's like they're reconquering the land again. They have to come back from exile. And Joshua is the one who helps them rebuild the temple and establish worship again in Israel. It's a huge moment. Joshua, or sometimes Jeshua. In the book of Ezra, he's, he's called Jeshua. It's the same person. Don't get confused by that. In Zechariah, it's Joshua. In Ezra, it's Jeshua. But there's, there's no original vowels in, in Hebrew. So it's just in English, it's the same thing. At every major point in the Israelite coming into the promised land, there is a Joshua, there is a hero named Joshua to help them. And so you would expect at this moment, as Matthew is building this out, and he's saying, this will be the coming Messiah. This will be the Son of God. You would expect there to be a Joshua. That's not, expect, that's not the surprise. The second part of the verse is the surprise. He will save His people from their sins. What you'd expect perhaps is some language from the book of Joshua. You will call His name Jesus, for He shall lead Israel to the promised land, overthrow the Roman rule, just like Joshua overthrew the leaders in the promised land, the Canaanite nations. Or maybe the more priestly picture. His name will be Jesus, for He will restore true worship in Israel. He will rebuild this temple to its, to its former glory. But the Scripture that's referenced is neither from the book of Joshua, nor Zechariah, nor Ezra. It's from Psalm 130. He will be named Jesus. He will save Israel from their sins. Save His people from their sins. The reference there is Psalm 138. That God will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. What is Psalm 130 about? Waiting on God. I wait for the Lord. I will wait for you. And at the last verse, that He will redeem Israel from all their iniquities. What Israel was really waiting for was not just a leader to reestablish the temple and not just a leader to help them overthrow Rome, but someone who could redeem them from all their iniquities. And of course, Jesus does lead us into the promised land. He is the Joshua who takes us to the new heavens and the new earth, this promised land for us. And He is the one who reestablishes the temple. He says, my temple, I will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. What does he say to the woman at the well? That, you know, there's coming a time when we'll worship in spirit and truth. It won't matter that you worship in this temple. You'll worship in me. He is the true temple. He is the true Joshua. 
But how does he accomplish each of those things? The temple that's destroyed and rebuilt is the temple of his body. The promised land that he brings us to is accomplished and brought to because he goes away. And so his death and his resurrection are the ways that he establishes himself as Joshua. And it's the way that we have all of our sins paid for. That's why He came. Mark 10 tells us that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. It's why He came. And so as we see these three episodes and the same story emerging, the pattern of a problem and then a plan and then seeing how God ultimately works His providence, we're called to trust in Him. And the first trust that we have is the trust in, in this salvation that He has accomplished for us. This passage isn't ultimately about us making decisions in our lives, even though I think it's instructive for that. It's about what God did in Jesus Christ for us and finished work, the work of bringing us to God and reconciling us and saving us from our iniquities. And this God who planned so great a salvation, who wove together such a beautiful story that we could never put together ourselves, offers us Himself in Jesus Christ and says, trust in Me. Lean on Me. This is what I've done. And that's the first trust that we have. The first trust is in the One who has accomplished salvation for us. And then we're told that we can walk in trust. Like Joseph. Because I do believe that just like Mary, he is a model for us. He's a model for us on how to trust God and live in his providence. And we look at what happened to Joseph and the repeated story and we gain some insight into the way that God works and our trust in him. And as we close today, I'll just mention four things that we can do in following Joseph as a model for trusting in the providence of God. And the first way is this, that we walk with God. The first thing that we know about Joseph is that he is a just man. Everything that follows, every providence, every hard, tumultuous thing that he has to do is within the context of him being sensitive to God's work already. And if you are wondering what it is that God's calling you to do, should you do X? Should you do Y? Should you do Z? Is it God's will? Is it His plan for me? You should first be someone who walks with God. Who knows Him. Let's not wait till the tough situation for us to see that God is someone that we should know and walk with. The second thing is that we listen. Isn't that what Joseph did? Being someone who walks with God, he was sensitive to what God was saying to him through the angel. God does not always speak through angels, even though I think he can and does still. But he speaks. He speaks through his word. He speaks through fellow believers. He speaks in the silence. He speaks in our discipline. He speaks in the wilderness. He speaks in all different kinds of places. Do we listen? Do we understand something of what He's saying to us? Even if we don't know for sure. 
Are we listening? Third, we watch. We watch for the providence. Perhaps God will show us what His plan is. But maybe not. Many people will say to you, just wait around and you'll understand what God's doing. Sometimes you will. Sometimes you won't. Did Joseph fully understand this story? I can't imagine that in the moment he did. You have to realize there's no voiceover in Joseph's life, right? Matthew was written later. This is what we would call a gloss. Matthew is filling in the details of this story. It's not as though when Joseph said, Perry, get up, let's go to Egypt. That a voice said, out of Egypt, I call my son. You know, like, oh, thank you. That's the confirmation I was looking for. That didn't happen. He just had to decide. He had to move towards it. And Matthew comes later and says, this is why it happened this way. And we don't always know the providences of God. We can watch for them. We don't always know, but we can watch and see if we can see what He is doing. But regardless, the fourth thing is that we have to act. In the end, Joseph just did something and he followed God. And to the best of his ability, he followed the dreams and he did what he thought God wanted him to do. And in the plan of God, it was what he wanted him to do. And sometimes he had to change course, like when he came to Judea. Hey, I thought I was supposed to come back to Judea. Well, Archelaus is still there. I guess I should go somewhere else. And he moved around. It's, it's fine. It's fine to just act in the world. Martin Luther is said to have said that we should love God and do what we want. There is a truth in that, that we just have to do something sometimes because we are walking with God. We're listening to Him. We're watching for His providence. Those are all assumed at that point. But then we just make a decision call to action and know that in the plan of God it will be for our salvation his glory and our good as I love the way and I'll close with this Heidelberg Catechism describes this we know this question we say it often here what is your only hope in life and death that I'm not my own but I belong to my faithful savior Jesus Christ if you go down in that answer there's another little section that says this He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, and this is the key phrase, all things must work together for my salvation. All things must work together for my salvation. Isn't that the story that we've just seen in three episodes? It is historical circumstances practical circumstances and yet through it all through everything God preserved Joseph and this child in such a way that it worked the salvation not just for him in the immediate moment from his enemies but salvation for the whole world found in Jesus Christ and the same is true for us when we see this pattern continuing that God is a God who addresses our problems who navigates our plans and then ultimately shows us or at least has in his mind what is his providence. That a trust can be built up in who he is. That we can follow him because he, the one who 
secured salvation for us also has our hairs numbered. Also knows about the details of what you're trying to decide or move in or live in right now. And all of those things must work together for our salvation, His glory, and our good. Let's pray.